When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you this weekend. As always, plenty to do, lots to talk about. Just to reset, and uh, you can hear me on Fox Business Network, FBN, Fox Business Network, every day, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m., 4 to 5 p.m. And uh, for some reason you can't make it at 4 why, then you can just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. And you'll never miss a single thing. Here, uh, you can live stream us on the Internet for the entire show. Lots of people do that. It's uh, LarryCudlow.com. No, it's LarryCudlowShow.com. I think I got that right. LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. Live stream us over the internet, goes all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and our friends along the Milky Way. And um, I want to begin with really a very hot story that developed this week, came out Thursday. Senator Chuck Grassley, through independent sources, got one of these FBI reports, 1023 reports, And it was a shocking report. It was a bombshell report. And it showed, this is the important thing, and I'll spend a moment on it, and we will talk a wee bit about it later on. We have Kim Strassel, the great Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal, at the half hour. But basically what this report showed with respect to the Ukrainian bribery scandal, so-called, and allegations there, It wasn't the Burisma oligarch people that were essentially trying to bribe Joe Biden, okay? It turns out, according to this 1023 document, which is loaded up with details and conversations, it was Joe Biden as vice president who engaged in a shakedown, a coercion scheme, and demanded payment from Burisma and the head of uh, Burisma. guy's name is uh, Zloshevsky, Zloshevsky. It was Papa Biden, a shakedown. Coercion. He said, you got to pay us. And you got to keep my son on your board. And then if you do that, we'll get rid of this prosecutor, uh, Victor Shokin, who's been bothering you and investigating you. And we will also 
help you expand your businesses in the United States, which is what Burisma wanted. They wanted to open up business in America. I think Texas, but no one's quite certain about that. I haven't seen details. But it's really quite remarkable. Uh, this guy, Shlovshevsky, he was the CEO of Burisma. And this um, confidential source that the FBI has been working with for many years, guy was paid, you know, six figures, a very credible, confidential source, and he relates in this 1023, this unclassified document, Chuck Rousey got it from separate, separate sources, but separate from any of the committee hearings. And he released it to the public. And he released it to the public because he wanted it to get out there and wanted people to decide. We want to go up on the Fox uh, News website. Brooke Singman, a uh, great reporter, has, um, has written this whole thing up. So it's a different story. It's a different story. Now, I will say this. These are allegations. These are allegations. And they have yet to be completely proven. But what's remarkable about this is, first of all, this uh, confidential source was deposed years ago. It looks like the deposition goes all the way back to 2016 based on actions taken by Papa Biden in 2014 and 2015. But essentially, in this conversation with the Burisma CEO, the confidential source, who's some kind of business consultant or advisor, not you know, we don't know exactly, but he was operating right in the middle of Burisma, and apparently he has a lot of experience in Ukraine, Russia, and so forth. He basically was saying to uh, Zlozhevsky, who was the Burisma CEO, he said, um, why do you have to give money? Aren't you worried about giving money to Joe Biden? Why don't you just hire a lawyer for $50,000, a good lawyer who will get you moving in uh, the United States? to expand your business. and uh, Or why don't you just use Hunter Biden? This is what the consultant said. You know, don't mess with Joe Biden, vice president. And uh, the CEO, Zloshevsky, the Brisbane CEO, says, well, basically, he is forced to pay the Bidens. He was forced to pay the Bidens. There's a Russian term for it, and it's forced or coerced to pay for it. This conversation was basically in Russia. He didn't want to pay him. The CEO of Brisbane said he did not want to pay the Bidens, and he was pushed to pay them. He was forced or coerced to pay them. And this allegedly took place right after the 2016 U.S. election. So Biden was still vice president at that point. And the uh, Brisbane CEO, Zloshevsky, says 
He tells this consultant, you know, the, the FBI source, he had many text messages and recordings that showed he, Mr. Zloshevsky, uh, was forced to pay the Bidens. And again, I come back to the story. The confidential source who was a business advisor, he said, get yourself a lawyer, pay him 50 grand, get going. And uh, the CEO of Brisbane said, I can't, I have, I have to pay them. I have to pay them. That's what the Vice President Biden wants. He insisted, he forced, he coerced. These are the words from the documents. From the 1023. And the FBI never investigated this. Never. Now, you know, this, let me go back to the source for one second. The source, the informant, who was interviewed on one of these, you know, FBI 1023 reports, it's a deposition. So if you lie in that kind of deposition and you're caught, you're going to jail. So there's a certain truthfulness, is there not, in that deposition? And the FBI had this since 2016 when the first conversation started? Or there's another theorem that says the uh, FBI had it in 2020, or that it circulated in the FBI in 2020, and they dismissed it. They left it. Never followed through. The story is at least three years old. At least three. could be seven years old going back to 2016. It's at least three years old going back to 2020. And basically, again, Papa Biden shook him down. Got to pay me. Got to pay my son. That's these $5 million bonus payments. And you got to keep my son on your board. And if you do that, if you do that, then we will get rid of this prosecutor who's after you, Shokin, Ukrainian prosecutor, and we'll help you open your business up to, to America. If you don't do it, if you don't pay us, we're not going to go after Shokin and we're not going to help you in the U.S. That was the inference. Now look, I'll conclude here. It wasn't, you know, many of us thought, the bribery was the Burisma oligarch bribing Joe Biden to get rid of Shokin and help get their business into America. No, the direction, the causality runs the other way. It was Biden coercing the Burisma CEO to pay him five million bucks and his son five million. Wasn't started by Burisma, started by Papa Biden. Papa Biden is the family business, the criminal business director. Always was. That's coming through. Joe Biden, I mean uh, Hunter Biden, his son, Hunter Biden, his son, is the vehicle. But the big guy, Joe Biden, he's the director. He's the CEO of this Biden family business which has taken in as much as $40 million for what services exactly? Influence peddling. 
in this case, getting rid of a Ukrainian prosecutor and helping an oil company come to America. Coercion, shakedown, different story than what we thought. Hats off to Chuck Grassley for putting this document out. Did, Chuck didn't say, didn't say anything. He just said, I want the public to read this. Now, I had Byron Donalds last night on and some others talking about how this does change the story. But, of course, the corruption is still there big time. And the fact that the FBI did not and so far is not investigating this is a very bad story. I'm going to take a quick break. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. So we're going to have uh, Kim Strassel, columnist for the Wall Street Journal, member of the editorial board, and she's got a new book out. She's going to come at the half hour. We will continue the conversation about Burisma. I'm just saying that um, it wasn't Burisma that was forcing a bribe or putting a bribe up to Joe Biden. It was Joe Biden shaking down Burisma. And that's what came out of this FBI 1023 statement deposition released by Chuck Rasta yesterday. I do, just in a, a couple of moments left, I, I want to talk about another subject. Please uh, permit me to switch gears. You know, uh, Joe Biden's out on the campaign trail talking about some weird thing called Bidenomics. You know, what's Bidenomics? Bidenomics is a $6 trillion spending plan. Cronyism is Bidenomics, given to his corporate allies, to the climate crazies, to democratic interest groups, to donors. None of that stuff is working as the economy is stagnating and inflation persists. But the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, came out with a report, and I just want to mention this. Joe Biden's always out there talking about how he cut the budget deficit by $1.7 trillion. He cut the budget deficit by $1.7 trillion. It's completely untrue. Completely untrue. The Washington Post called it the bottomless Pinocchio. (laughs) Okay? And I want to tell you, this year alone, I mean, I don't know when Biden thinks he did this. It's in his imagination, in his brain someplace. This year alone, which is fiscal year 23, we just finished the month of June, so it started last September, right? So it's got nine months. Anyway, we're scheduled, predicted by the CBO, not me, by the CBO, Congressional Budget Office. The deficit this year is going to be $2.25 trillion. $2.25 trillion. I'm laughing only because I don't know where Biden gets his minus 1.7. We're actually increasing. But here's the other point I want to make. The CBO does these long-range estimates. And what they're saying is over the next three decades, you know, coming off the Biden baseline, if you continue current policies, over the next three decades, the federal budget debt, the debt, will be 200% of GDP. Now, it's bad enough, presently, the federal debt is about 100% of GDP, okay? It's about tw- that's federal debt in public hands. It's about $26 trillion. It will double as a share of GDP. 
from 100% to 200%. Now, that number is so, you, you can't hardly get, wrap your brain around that. Now, what does that mean, 200% of GDP? Well, it just means we're going to spend and spend and borrow and borrow. That's what it means. If the Federal Reserve monetizes, you know, if they buy the bonds and in, inject new cash, you're going to have a massive inflation problem. But even if the Fed does, and, and by the way, that's basically what the Fed did until recently. But even if the Fed stays out of that, there's so much bonds coming onto the market that interest rates are going to have to go up. And that's going to impact private interest rates like mortgages, like credit cards, like car loans, things of that sort. Rates will have to go up very, very significantly. That's what the CBO is suggesting. Joe Biden's running around with Bidenomics telling people he cut the deficit $1.7 trillion. The Washington Post calls it a bottomless Pinocchio, right? That means your nose is growing as you tell these lies. And the CBO is saying, hang on a second, it is going to get worse. It's not going to get a little worse. It's going to get massively worse. So we need to do something. One thing we need to do is replace Joe Biden. And get a good conservative Republican in there. Try Donald Trump, who's on the campaign trail talking about drill, baby, drill, impounding, taking excess spending off, getting rid of Biden's new regulations, and making the Trump tax cuts, the successful Trump tax cuts, permanent. Now, what you got to do here is take your spending. It's a spending problem, and it's a growth problem. So we need two things. Right now, we're spending 25% of GDP. We should knock that down to 20% of GDP. And secondly, instead of growing at 1% to 2%, we should be growing at 4 to 5%. All right? Now, we need pro-growth, free market, capitalist supply-side policies to do it. Bidenomics is a fraud. We need a new game plan. I'm Kudlow, Kim Strassel, other side of the break. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. Great pleasure to have our next guest, who is just the smartest person and the best columnist in the business. Her name is Kim Strassel. She's a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. You can read her weekly column. It's called Potomac Watch. It is excellent. And she has a brand new book out. It's called The Biden Malaise, How America Bounces Back from Joe Biden's Dismal Repeat of the Jimmy Carter Years. I lived through the Jimmy Carter Years as a young professional. Actually, it was the beginning of my career. First of all, Kim Strassel, thank you. How are you? I am well, but I'm better for the fact that I'm here with you, Larry. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's great. You were, by the way, you were fabulous on the TV show the other day. Absolutely oh, fabulous. It was you just... have one of the funnest TV shows around, so you make it very easy. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Kim. I'm gonna uh, we'll have a nice half hour. I want to, the first part. I want to talk about Biden's scandal. Second part. I want to talk about your book because it's quite interesting, but. Uh, I'm sure you've been following this story. Chuck Grassley releases this bombshell uh, 1023 FBI report, and it turns out that uh, it wasn't really the it wasn't the Burisma people bribing Biden. It was Biden coercing and shaking down the Burisma people. 
for five million bucks and five million bucks for his son. So the uh, the um, it went you know the scandal went the other way. Now these are allegations, but they're allegations from a very respected FBI source who you know wrote and in, was interviewed for a ten twenty three. It's a deposition. If you lie, you go to jail. Anyway, what do you what do you make of this story? It changes the game a bit. Well, what you just said to me was the most noteworthy allegation in here, because we've known some of this, right? We knew that there was an allegation of bribery. We knew that it claimed $5 million each to Joe and Hunter. We knew that there were supposedly recordings. Now we've got confirmed who the players are, right? Uh, this Zlachewski guy who ran Burisma. Um, and we hear this amazing thing that supposedly it wasn't Zlachewski who approached the Bidens and said, hey, can you fix things up for me uh, with this prosecutor who's looking into my co- company? Can you make him go away? Uh, the allegation is that the Bidens basically shook down this guy. Mm. Um, we, you know, we don't know all of the details of that. Um, and so what we're looking at here, Larry, is, is I think we've been using the wrong word. If these allegations were true, we're not talking necessarily about bribery. We're talking about extortion. Yes. That's it. Extortion. That's exactly the right word. I mean, it's just part of the general corruption, but it's even worse. I mean, I think extortion, you know, is even meaner. It's even worse uh, than bribery. And it came from Papa Biden. You know, there's a congresswoman upstate New York, Republican, Claudia Tenney. I don't know if you know her. Very, very smart woman. Comes on the show a bunch. She's a friend of mine. She's She's been saying all along that Joe Biden, Joe Biden, uh, is running the Biden crime family. It's not Hunter. Hunter's his vehicle, but it's Joe who's making the decisions. And that's what was so interesting, or one of the things so interesting about this 1023 report, because it was Joe Biden that was extorting the head of Burisma. And uh, I think it was Joe Biden who was calling the shots all along uh during this uh, influence peddling scheme and all the money laundering and the LLCs and so forth and so on. Well, you know, the other person whose name doesn't get mentioned enough, but I think is probably really important in all of this as well, is his brother, who, you know, was, we do know for a fact, was working alongside Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I tend to be really careful with things only because I, I still have a searing memory of the Steele dossier uh, and that confidential human source, right? Mm. So I think we always have to treat these things carefully. But one thing that I would just point out that I think is really notable, having written so much about that, what turned out to be a phony report to the FBI, ginned up by the Clinton uh, campaign. But, you know, that was a bunch of allegations about Trump people that had no bearing in anything else that was going on in reality, right? They just came out of nowhere. You know, supposedly Carter Page was getting paid 10% of some deal and of an oil deal and everything, but there was nothing else to, to make sense of it, right? What's different with this one is, A, it's very specific about the dates, the times, the meetings, the players, and who said what. But, two, it, it fills in details of things that we already know are true. Hunter Biden did work on the board of Burisma, Right. Uh, Joe Biden did fire that prosecutor who was investigating Burisma. He bragged about it. Um, so 
these are sort of things that just it it, it gives it a diff, very different flavor, and I think something that's a lot more serious that needs to be looked at than that hocus stuff that the country had to spend two years obsessing over. You know, when you read through the Grassley 1023 release, it's striking, and this is to your point, the level of detail in these conversations. You can't make this stuff up. Byron Donalds yesterday on the show said it was a a novel. It says like a novel. Uh, It's like a spy story. And that the other thing was that the, the confidential source, who I guess is some kind of business consultant, he's, he says to the head of Burisma, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to mess with the vice president? And, and the head of Burisma says, no, I really don't want to, but he coerced me into it. I mean, I, 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 mean, I think that's very interesting. And then I think there's a long trail, according to this stuff, there's a whole bunch of text messages out there someplace. And then, of course, the audio tapes, the 17 uh, conversations, two with Papa Biden, 15 with uh, Hunter Biden. So you've got a really significant level of detail, which I think adds to this. And then the other thing is, again, I know there are allegations, and I have to be cautious myself just because I'm a host, but... Um, we know that these you know, family LLCs got filled up with money from China, Ukraine, Romania. I mean, that evidence, you can't make that stuff up. Those, those suspicious uh, reports, so-called, that comes from the Treasury Department. There was never anything like that um, you know, with the Steele dossier. Right. We, and we have all of that document. And we also know, according to these IRS whistleblowers who testified this week, that this was something that Hunter did frequently. Remember, one of his supposed tax crimes, or at least what they claim is, is that he was having money sent to a completely different entity. And then he was taking it as a loan to himself, hmm. uh, which is, you know, obvious tax fraud because you can't loan yourself your own money. Um, but he was doing that to avoid having to pay taxes. And, and we know how many of these LLCs he had in place. Another thing that I was reading, there was an FBI analyst who was quoted in the press talking about how one of the players here uh, involved and mentioned in this 1023 uh, also had connections with a Ukrainian who was very into and founded a firm heavy into Bitcoin. Um, you know, that was early days back then for that kind of, uh, but, you know, could there have been transfers there? The thing that's striking to me, Larry, is the FBI silence on this, because, right. again, unlike what they had before, where they spent years chasing their tail, the, the people in here are named uh, y- Ukraine. We're providing them enormous amount of help right now. Uh, can you really tell me that we wouldn't be granted access to any of these people if we simply asked? Uh, have they not run down these questions? And if they haven't, why not? Because this seems to be like a roadmap for what steps you would take next. Well, I guess it was your column two weeks ago on the FBI. Why hasn't the FBI investigated this stuff? They've been sitting on it for years. And the deposition from their source I mean, if you lie in the deposition, you're in a heap of trouble. Why hasn't the FBI investigated this? Uh, No clue. I mean, 
so we know that this so this kind of has a little bit of a convoluted history. Uh, remember, this was reportedly given by this confidential human source to the FBI a number of years ago. OK, and then when the FBI, as part of Bill Barr, set up this probe to kind of look into all of these allegations about Ukraine, uh, et cetera, and, and the Bidens and, and, and Trump, various, all these things, are, everyone's looking at this. They come across this, and then they decide to re-interview this source, uh, which is why the document's been updated, as it were, or it has a more recent date. Uh, but we know that it was then sent to Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh FBI field office, who decided, at least as a baseline level, that it was not disinformation. Mm. And then it was sent to David Weiss. So the question seems to be, there seems to be two questions. Why was it never dealt with earlier in the process when the allegations were first reported? But then the more immediate question is, why was it not dealt with after it landed in Weiss' office when there was an entire team of investigators tasked at looking at exactly this kind of stuff? Hmm. Well, there's a lot of talk that um, the Oversight Committee is going to call Weiss to testify. I don't know if he will. But I think that's oh, going to be crucial. Apparently, he's already agreed to sit at least in a, a private meeting with House Republicans. Mm-hmm. So his um, name... And that is only, by the way, give credit to Chuck Grassley, give credit to House Republicans, and give credit to those two brave whistleblowers. We wouldn't know any of this, mm-hmm. and Weiss would feel no pressure to go do this if they had not come forward and spilled the beans. All right, more to be revealed. Let's take a quick break, folks. We're talking to Kim Strassel, member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Her weekly column is called Potomac Watch. And after the break, I want to talk about her new book. It's called The Biden Malaise, How America Bounces Back from Joe Biden's Dismal Repeat of the Jimmy Carter Years. What a great title that is. Kim Strassel will be right back. I'm Kudlow. We'll just take a quick break. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Kim Strassel, member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board and author of a weekly column called Potomac Watch. Most importantly, she's got a brand-new book out, The Biden Malaise, How America Bounces Back from Joe Biden's Dismal Repeat of the Jimmy Carter Years. So, Kim, who's worse, Biden or Carter? Well, I think the book makes a pretty persuasive case that Biden is worse. (laughs) And, you know, uh, and here's why. I think it comes down to um, intent um, and also what they inherited. Uh, so, you know, if you just look at it superficially, there's so many comparisons, right? Inflation, high energy prices, uh, foreign policy fiascos, border disorder. A lot of people don't know Carter had his own border run in Florida with the Mariel Boatlift. Mm. Um, but crime, lots of lots of things. But the, the book, I think, makes the case that, one, Carter inherited a much tougher hand, okay, mm-hmm. with the world was already in the Great Recession. I mean, sorry, Great Inflation. Um, uh, you'd had a global oil shock. He didn't have really a domestic energy industry to speak of. 
Biden, by contrast, had inherited these incredible fundamentals from the economy. We were about to roar back from COVID. Um, he, he, we were a country that a year previously had become a net exporter of oil. Uh, he had everything he needed. All he needed to do was sit still. But that was that's his. That's why he really is worse. Is because he acted and he acted. Jimmy Carter wanted to make try to fix the country's problems. He didn't do a good job. He messed things up. But Joe Biden took these steps because he wanted to transform this country into a European socialist style uh, mm, welfare country, it. and and he yes. wrecked a good situation. He he took a, a a thriving country and he hurt it. Yeah, you know, it's not your father, it's not your grandfather's Democratic Party. Jimmy Carter was a liberal. Yes, uh, he got mugged by reality in the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, in Afghanistan and also the uh, hostage situation uh, in Iran. And as you say, the oil shock and the inflation, the Republicans ahead of him had done a terrible job on the economy. But Joe Biden, uh, you know, and the Democrats today, it's a, it's a far left, so-called progressive party. You're right about European uh, socialism. Um Carter wised up a little bit toward the end, didn't he? I mean, he realized this, he had to be tough on the Soviets. He also had some deregulation on the economy. He appointed Paul Volcker. I don't see Joe Biden wising up at all. I mean, Kim, I was talking earlier. Biden is out there selling something called Bidenomics. He says he cut the budget deficit by $1.7 trillion. The Washington Post calls that a bottomless Pinocchio, and then the CBO puts the CBO puts out a report that says this deficit this year is going to be 2.25 trillion, and over the next 30 years it's going to be 200 percent of GDP. I mean, it's kind of a hopeless story. If he's not, I mean, if he's beaten, and maybe you can you can come back. If he wins, it's going to be more of the same. Well, I mean, that's a huge. This distinction between these two guys, Jimmy Carter was an honest man, okay? He wasn't going to look at you and say, uh, oh, actually, the sky is blue when, you know, it was pouring down rain. Um, and and you know, one reason, by the way, you couldn't get away with that back then either because we had an honest press corps, right? Um, I mean, one reason this administration gets away with so much because nobody will. They, they, the press goes along with these hilarious narratives that are divorced from reality. Except for but, me. Um, well, except for you, <laughs> I'm talking about the rest of the press, obviously. Right. Um, but, you know, Jimmy Carter was willing, as you say, to change course. This administration has never changed course. This administration, its only answer is to either tell falsehoods about what's going on or point the finger and blame someone else. You know, Putin's price hike. I could give you 10 other examples. Um, and, and I do not see them changing course, which is very concerning. Uh, but this is why you end up with Bidenomics, because if you're not going to change course and you're left with this hopeless story, as you say, you have to try to sell it as something that is actually an achievement, which is which is laughable. Yeah. So in the book, I mean, you actually lay out how America can bounce back. Do we have a plan well, like, here? A strategy? Well, I, Should we run? Kim Strassel, you ready to throw your hat in the ring for president? <laughs> Never. <laughs> uh, give me more credit than that, Larry. <laughs> um, uh, you know, yes. Here's one more thing 
that Biden had that uh, Jimmy Carter didn't. Uh, Biden had the history of Reagan um, and the history of policies that actually work. Mm. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter, r- remember, you know, at that point, like people were listening to Milton Friedman, but he was not. He had not been adopted as a cause, you mm. know, but like he was in the end by Reagan. Most most elected leaders around the entire world just defaulted to Keynesian economics. It was the only thing that guided anybody. Um, you know, Joe Biden knows better. He lived through all of this. And the answer now is that the Republicans who are out there getting ready to vote for someone to reelect, they need to get somebody that's got a clear vision for the future and who has some optimism the way Reagan did um, and has the ability to refocus the problem back on what Joe Biden has done um, and promise people that they have a plan for how to get us to a better place. You know, you go back to Reagan, uh, Carter, Reagan, uh, even during the Carter years, uh, the supply side movement was gathering force. You know, Laffer and Mundell yes. and the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal under the great Robert Bartley, uh, Paul Craig Roberts, Jack Kemp, uh, yours truly. I mean, you had mm-hmm. this intellectual change, uh, you know, for limited government tax cuts and, you know, freeing up the economy for capitalism. And yes, Milton Friedman. Uh, you're right. Biden saw that, but Biden constantly rejects that. Kim Strassel, you know, that's what's so troublesome. And the people around him, I mean, they make a fetish every speech, trickle-down economics, blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's the discouraging part of this. There's no Bill Clinton reset, I think, that would come if Joe Biden were reelected. No, and, and yet, as you know, Larry, every time they're in charge and their policies hold sway, uh, that's the moment that we see these gaps grow in the country between mm. those that are wealthier and those that have less. Um, you know, that that's not the way that you get people to move up through those quintiles mm. and achieve the American dream. Yeah. Anyway, Kim Strassel, the name of the book, The Biden Malaise, How America Bounces Back from Joe Biden's Dismal Repeat of the Jimmy Carter Years. The author is Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal. Go out and buy the book. One click on Amazon. Thank you, Kim Strassel. Good luck. We'll talk soon. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, going to talk to Steve Forbes about economic decline. Is inflation dead? How to restore growth? All the good things in life that we need to see once again in America. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. We bring in the great Steve Forbes, dear friend. He is chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media. And his most recent book is called Inflation. What it is, why it's bad, and how to fix it. Welcome back, Steve Forbes. Steve, I want to, to talk to you. Yeah, I want to start off with um, this bizarre story. Uh, our friend Kevin Hassett pointed it out. The Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, is saying that under current services and current law, the Biden baseline, the next three decades, would take federal debt. 
which is now about 100% of GDP, and would double it to 200% of GDP. 200% of GDP, okay? I think in World War II at the end, it was about 140% of GDP, something like that. Anyway, I was just wondering what you thought about that. Uh, is the Federal Reserve, would the Fed monetize all that debt and create gigantic inflation? Uh, would we default on our bonds? Would interest rates soar? Would gold prices soar? In fact, let me add gold. I'm looking at gold, Steve. It got as low as about 1650 uh, towards the end of last year, and now it's back uh, flirting with 2000. It's 1960. Or 66. But what happens with 200% of GDP? I almost I, I can't get my brain to wrap around that. Well, it's uh, not going to happen because you're going to have a crisis even before that. Uh, to get that kind of debt out there, that's uh, going to depress the economy, which means revenues are going to be a disappointment. And as you know, revenues this year are, are coming in below expectation, which is why Biden posturing a year ago as the deficit fighter is now a laughable joke. And so it's going to be worse than that. And the big question you asked there was, would the Fed monetize it? When you get to a crisis point where you have to uh, rely on a central bank to buy your bonds instead of a free market, then you've got a crisis where the government becomes more dependent, as we see in places like Argentina, on the central bank printing the money. That's Mm -hmm. how you get hyperinflation. So the key thing is, how much debt can this government keep putting out there with a sluggish economy, stagnant economy with European-style growth rates, and the markets are going to say, we're not going to buy your bonds. Even if you raise the interest rates, we're just not going to buy as many of them. We got a little bit of a flavor of that. You referred to it earlier, what happened in 2021 when the Federal Reserve monetized much of the deficit spending from Joe Biden, continuing spending long after the pandemic crisis. The worst of it was over. So we're not even going to get to 30 years and 200 percent. We're going to have a crisis well before that if we continue on the current path. You know, I can just see, okay, uh, in the next few years, with the deficit continuing to rise, I can just see, of course, Democrats for sure, but even moderate Republicans, rhino Republicans, saying, well, we have to make a deal and maybe we'll trim some spending. But isn't it time, Steve Forbes, to raise taxes so we can get more revenues? I can just see that. So what would happen if we raise taxes to fight the deficit? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know from history what happens. Uh, That is, you depress the economy. And it's so amazing, after 4,000 years of history, where we see time and time again, states, entities that have low tax rates, stable money, do far better, uh, grow more, have a more uh, prosperous economy than those that don't. Uh, remember, back in the late, we were, we were alive to experience it firsthand, back in the late 70s, early 80s. There was talk of a grand bargain, grand deal of, of, of uh, reducing uh, the deficit, uh, fighting inflation by depressing the economy, raising taxes and all that kind of thing. And uh, Reagan went in the opposite direction. That 30% tax cut that he proposed that Jack mm-hmm. Kemp had originally put on the table a great late congressman. Uh, that was not uh, popular. The Republican Party finally came around to it, but the head of the Republican senator said it's a riverboat gamble. Mm-hmm. And uh, But Reagan pushed it through, and we got the great 80s and 90s. And so uh, the lesson is very clear. And I'm waiting for this debate next month with the Republican candidates and subsequent debates 
to see who's going to put on the table real Reagan-esque proposals of uh, radical tax cuts, stable dollar, getting away with with uh, regulation. And then what people need are examples, like this idiot thing of uh, New York becoming you know, the New York is now uh, being known as the falling tower of pizzas because they want to ban coal-fired and wood-fired pizzas. Falling tower of pizzas, New York. Uh, make fun of this kind of crazy. And people respond. They know it's idiocy. Air conditioners that don't work. Oh, that way people won't move to Florida and Texas. You know. I mean, it'll be interesting. <laughs> this is falling tower of pizza. It's very good, Steve. Um, people have got to, it, these candidates have got to remember the Laffer curve. I mean, I would argue if you reduce tax rates or at least make the uh, Trump tax cuts permanent, but keep tax rates as low as possible, that's the s- part of the solution. High taxes will destroy the economy, right? Revenues will collapse. The deficit will be even worse. The other side of the coin, Steve, is we're spending about 25% of GDP, which is very high. Historically, we spend about 20, maybe 21. We got to get that back to 20% or 17 or 18%. I mean, when you ran for president, you wanted a low flat tax rate. Uh, and a simple tax code, that's the argument that should be made. And then we've got to make the dollar as good as gold. Now, we'll see well, if right. any of these candidates and, uh, do that. You're right. And that's what the big fight in there among Republicans is. What we used to call them eye-shade Republicans. Nobody mm. knows what eye-shades are anymore. But the root canal without the anesthesia Republicans right. versus those who, uh, who who see what happens when you have a vibrant, growing economy, inventing things, developing things we couldn't even conceive of. You know, that's what happened in the early 1920s when we had a terrible inflation, Great Depression, completely forgotten. And uh, so uh, they had a huge rise in the standard of living. Instead of outhouses, people had indoor plumbing and wonderful mm-hmm. electricity and wonderful things like that. So there are a lot of things in the offing that the Republicans should uh, say they, in, in the offing, especially on the health care side. It's going to make your life dramatically better, but we need a vibrant, open economy and, a, and an environment where these people, the entrepreneurs and others, can go out and do these great things. If they fail, that's too bad for them. But if they succeed, all of us have a better life. But we got to give them the uh, incentives. It's got to pay after tax to take these you risks. Bet. Reduce yeah. the price on doing good things. Mm. Reduce the burden. Yeah. That, that's how, 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 how far are you going to run when you have 20-pound weights on your ankles? Take mm-hmm. the weights off, and you'll see this economy really sprint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it, it's, there's two you know, diametrically opposed approaches, uh, and you're exactly right. We have to see what these candidates are going to say. You know, Steve, let me just come back to the price of gold, because I was looking at the chart this morning. It got down towards 1600 toward the end of last year, uh, the you know the Fed would tightening and tightening and tightening. Um, now it's back to close to two thousand. Is gold suggesting that you know these better inflation numbers uh, are not uh, permanent? That we haven't whipped inflation yet? I think uh, they 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 suggest real concerns about uh, where 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 this economy is going. Yeah, even before the financial markets uh, wake, wake, wake up to it, the importance of next year's elections. And we saw from the 1970s 
where the Fed would engineer a severe recession. Back in 1974, well before uh, Volcker and Reagan came along, we had a severe recession, highest unemployment since uh, the Great Depression. Hmm. Well, we had uh, the Nixon uh, being run out of town, political crisis, foreign policy crisis, and uh, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, came down. And then uh, what, what happened was they undermined the integrity of the dollar again, put in anti-growth policies, and uh, we are right back in the even in the worst situation. So what I worry about the Fed is they don't know how to they don't know what inflation is, which is undermining the integrity of the dollar. And two, they figure you fight it by making people poorer. Hmm. So uh, that's why when, whenever you get bad economic numbers, the markets say, "Aha, maybe that'll have them take the boot off of our necks." And we can grow again. But if we start to grow again, then you're going to hear the old stories. Oh, well, the economy is overheating. And I ask mm. you, and we've had talked about this before, how many people at night mm. when their pay goes up in real terms start to get the sweats? Oh, I'm overheating. Take it away. Mm. It's, it's so preposterous. I agree with that. I mean, it's just the wrong policy. What's the Steve Forbes uh, economic outlook these days? Uh, we haven't reached the recession point yet. We're kind of running around 2% in the second quarter that just ended. Uh, one thing I was talking about on the show last night, uh, the index of leading indicators, Steve, uh, coming out of the conference board, has fallen uh, 15 straight months, and the conference board is saying that they now expect a recession to begin in the third quarter, the quarter we're in right now, and go on into next year, uh who knows? Nobody's got a perfect crystal ball. But what are you thinking? Well, I don't know where, when, when the economic theologians are going to declare a recession or whatever they want to call it. But most people, it's the, what we're experiencing and will be experiencing more because of these anti-growth policies is the economic equivalent of walking pneumonia. Perhaps mm. not enough to put you in bed, but you sure, sure feel punk about it. And what you also see are millions of Americans getting behind the eight ball falling behind financially. Some people are doing very well, but if you look at credit card debt, record high, uh, mortgage rates, uh, adjustable rates, that's uh, being hitting uh, homeowners, and it's going to be hitting uh, businesses, especially in commercial real estate. So there's some very real headwinds coming up. So uh, whatever numbers they want to conjure up, all I know is we have a punk economy. Uh, people are going to feel they're falling behind rather than moving ahead. And uh, why Joe Biden wants to boast about that, I think that's one reason why he's not going to be the candidate in 2024. Talk about not being tethered to reality. Oy. Yeah, well, so 1% to 2% is nothing to write home about. I mean, that's an it's important Europe point. It's stagnation. That's yeah. what it is. I mean, you really, you know, given the sluggish growth of recent years, we really should be aiming for 4 5 6%, it seems to me. Absolutely, and we're capable of doing it. And it comes from not just making more things of the same, but from great new things, uh, George Gilder discusses in his book a, a product called graphene, and mm. uh, it's a kind of a, a carbon thing. It's 200 times the strength of steel, has the conductivity of, a, I think, several thousand times that of copper, mm. one of the most fantastic things ever uh, ever found. Mm. The problem is creating it uh, is highly expensive. Well, now there have been break breakthroughs coming with that out of Rice University and elsewhere. 18 companies uh, are now finding ways to use this thing that no mm. one's heard of. Most of them Israeli. Uh, mm. That should be here, not in Israel. We should both be doing it. So, But these great things are uh, out there in the offing, in the brewing, just like back in the 1970s. You had Apple coming out of nowhere. You had FedEx. Mm. You had all, uh, all these great new companies that no one had heard of. 
They're in the incubation stage in the 70s. We've been benefiting from them ever since. We've got to get that incubation uh, going good today. All right. Terrific stuff. Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media and the author of his latest book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. Many thanks, Steve. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk to the lawyer, Greg Jarrett, about the whole scandal business. He always has some great insights. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want to turn to some of the Donald Trump legal issues. Mr. Trump, as you know, is way ahead in the polling for the Republican nomination, way ahead. But uh, he's got the documents issue, and lately uh, Jack Smith is uh, threatening. I don't know where this is going to go, but apparently Trump is some kind of target with respect to the January 6th. So we call in our great friend Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst, New York Times bestseller. By the way, the book is The Trial of the Century. It's a must-read, The Scopes Monkey Trial, William Jennings Bryan versus Clarence Darrow. Terrific. Uh, Greg, good morning. Thank you for doing this. Uh, what's your, what are you thinking? Uh, let's talk about uh, the latest threat. Uh, January 6th, really? Trump is going to be blamed for January 6th? I don't see it, but what do you think? Oh, I don't see it at all. In fact, the classified documents case, which I think is is not a good case, is is stronger than any January 6th indictment. You know, charging him with inciting violence based on the speech is foolhardy. You know, there's nothing in his remarks uh, where he encouraged imminent lawless action, which is the legal and constitutional standard. Um, And it's not a crime to claim that an election was stolen. Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi uh, did it four years earlier. Uh, encouraging Republican lawmakers to challenge the certification of electors on January 6th, which they did. Well, so what? That's permitted under the Electoral Count Act, and indeed Democrats did it Mm. four years earlier. Mm. Uh, So that sort of leaves things like defrauding the government and obstruction. Um, Whenever I see that, I think... The prosecutor has a weak case, and he's grabbing for something or anything. Uh, You know, defrauding the judgment uh, requires knowing uh, false and deceitful interference in a government function. Well, you've got to get into the mind of, of Donald Trump. If he truly believed that he won, even if he's wrong, that doesn't rise to the level of a crime. Deprivation of rights under color of law... Those are civil rights cases, hmm. uh, not election cases. So I, this is an enormous stretch. Um, Greg, Trump announced that, I guess, Sunday, if I'm not mistaken, last Sunday, he got the information that he was a target of the investigation. And everybody said, well, okay, if, if you're the target, then they're going to indict you. Uh, and then there was this four days stuff. But nothing so far. Nothing's happened. I right. mean, how does it? What is the process here? Are they just waiting for it? Is it going to happen? Well, target letters aren't required uh, under any law. Um, it, it is done 
uh, as sometimes as a matter of course or courtesy to give uh, the suspect a right to uh, testify before the grand jury, which I would advise against, and I promise you Trump's not going to do that. Um, I, you know, I'm always very suspicious of a guy like Jack Smith, who is the special counsel, who has an abysmal track record of mm-hmm. contorting uh, the law in bringing politically driven cases and has lost two of the most notable cases ever, uh, one getting reversed unanimously, the Governor Bob McDonald case, uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, I'm not sure what's behind this. Uh, maybe, you know, further public uh, sullying of Donald Trump right. by sending out the target letter, right. or maybe he intends to bring what I think would be an incredibly foolish and weak case against they'll do, Trump. They'll do anything to damage Trump, anything yeah. at all. Anyway, Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. Folks, read the book. It's very cool. Trial of the Century. Remember the Scopes Monkey Trial. I love the book myself. Greg, thank you for this this morning. Folks, take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger and a Fox News contributor. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Let's take a look at this Republican primary stuff and polling. A couple new polls out today, yesterday, the day before. The Kaplan poll, the Harris Harvard poll. That one's a really good one. Uh, Donald Trump has a big lead, but Vivek Ramaswamy is moving into second place. I find that very interesting, and I need some wisdom from my pal Joe Concha, who's a columnist at The Messenger. He's also a Fox News contributor, and he's written a terrific book that's still out there. Come on, man. The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Presidency and How to Return America to Greatness. Boy, we need that very much. Uh, Joe Concha, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Um, I just was interested... Uh, you know, Trump still has about a 35 to 40 point lead, but um, Vivek Ramaswamy has now moved into second place around, I don't know, I'll call it 12 percent, uh, tied with Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, and then there's the rest of the field, uh, Christie, Tim Scott, Mike Pence, they're all around 4 or 5 percent, Nikki Haley. Uh, even less, 3%. What, what's your take on the Vivek Ramaswamy thing, Joe? He's flawless during his public speaking events, during interviews. He's prepared. He's intelligent. He's fearless. He's a guy who you know you're not getting a phony, I'm telling you what you want to hear kind of sermon. He believes everything that he says. Uh, obviously young, right, uh, 37 years old, I believe. Mm. And all I know is I was down in Florida. I was at the Breakers. It was a Freedom Works event, you know, Steve Moore's group. Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to be the appetizer. In other words, they, they were having <laughs> dinner, and I was going to go on before dinner, and then Vivek was going to be the uh, keynote. But then yeah. he had a scheduling problem where he had to go first because he had to go somewhere. And then I was 
the guy who had to follow him. And after he spoke, I go, I gotta follow that. I'm, I'm screwed. It's 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 like following Cutlo. It's like this this is not good. So uh, I was so impressed with him. Yeah, um, and I can very easily see Trump uh, if he's the nominee and says looking that way more and more that that he chooses Vivek Ramaswamy as his as his VP. I don't care about age. I, I think that that's exactly the kind of warrior that he's going to want with him. Um, I know Vivek very well. He's been a guest on our show. I've spoken with him. Uh, he spoke at a dinner, uh, a committee to unleash prosperity dinner about a month ago. He does talk, you know, it's interesting to me. He talks about issues, Joe Concha. You know, it's an issues. I mean, he goes through the gamut, you know, free speech, no censorship. Of course, he's anti-woke. Uh, he's pro-growth, tax cuts and so forth, deregulation. And so I just think there's a lesson there because I think a lot of these other guys, and frankly that includes DeSantis, have not really run an issues campaign. And I would say even Trump is running an issues campaign. So I think his youthfulness, he's a very smart guy, and he's an issues guy, and he's moving up in the polls. I mean, nobody else is moving up except him. That's true, and 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 DeSantis is. Look, I, I was on your show many times uh, with with, um, with Mark Simone, mm. and I was more optimistic about the DeSantis campaign uh, than than Mark was, because uh, I thought that wow, this guy wins by twenty points in Florida, which used to be a toss up state. He's winning mm. Democratic uh, counties, and he's winning Hispanics, and he's winning suburban women, and he's winning independents. And you know, this is the national candidate, a guy in his mid forties, military background, uh, Harvard, Yale educated. Uh, this this. Looks Looks like on paper uh, an excellent candidate. And I'm not saying he's run a bad campaign. I just think it's 2016 all over again, where Trump just blots out the sun. He he eats up all the media coverage, and it's hard to get noticed. Now Vivek has gotten noticed in the sense where, okay, yes, he's polling better, but he's still obviously well behind Trump, and he's not going to catch him. Uh, but but that's that's the thing. Every time Trump is indicted, every time there's a Trump uh, talk of uh, of another arrest, his poll numbers go up. And to your point, then we're not talking about issues anymore. We're talking about Donald Trump and his trial. Uh, one's going to start what in May of next year, just a couple of months before Election Day. Uh, and and if that gets pushed out, all people are going to be talking about is Trump and deep state, and that's fine. But we're not talking about the things that really are affecting people on a daily basis, which are wages, which are the border, which are education, which is foreign policy, which is crime in American cities, trade, energy independence. I, I don't hear anything about that. It's just all about the Trump drama. And, and in the end, that's the best thing for Biden, because we're not talking about his record, which is profoundly horrible and all the things I just said. Hmm. I don't see how, I mean, you mentioned this, uh, the judge down in Florida is going says that the documents, uh, the case uh, on the classified documents will be brought to court in May of 2024. Well, Joe, by May of 2024, you will have already probably picked the Republican nominee. Now, it looks like Trump at this point. Um, just to take that, I, I, I don't know that. I'm just saying it looks like Trump. By the way, can I just say one more thing about DeSantis? DeSantis was a very good Yale College baseball player. Like, I like that a lot. I just want to put that in there. A baseball <laughs> player. Okay, it's so very important. Bush, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, just like Papa Bush. Anyway, how the hell can you have a trial, uh, you know, when you're moving from primaries to convention? I mean, why not just postpone the thing to, to, to after the election? And in fact, why not let the electorate, 
Why not let the voters, in effect, be the jury for this legal case or all these legal cases? Oh, Larry, you're making too much sense for this world. <laughs> of course it should be. No, it should go on. You know, and may, either you have it, have it in two or three months. Have it before the primaries or have it after the election. You can't do it right in the middle because you're right. Mm. He clinched, Donald Trump did, in May of 2016, that mm. nomination. Uh, so, yeah, it'll probably happen around that time, too, eight, late, late April, uh, early May. Uh, and, and that's exactly when the, so when he clinches and it's supposed to be, all right, now it's off to the general. It's going to be, no, it's off to the courthouse, actually. And you know how the media coverage is going to be around this. Uh, meanwhile, we're hearing more and more Republicans talk about how Joe Biden may be impeachable now based on these uh, documents and bank records and whistleblower testimony around all these millions of dollars that got into Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's and James Biden, pick your Biden, uh, made a lot of money off of in places like China and Ukraine. And, and what I always go back to, Larry, and, and, and people don't talk about this enough, in 2017, Joe Biden, who didn't do any big public speeches or anything like that, like Bill Clinton did and got, you know, $100,000 per speech type of thing, uh, somehow off of a vice president's salary and off of a Senate salary, which are good, but not buying a beach house on the mm. beach good, right? Mm. They paid nearly $3 million for that house in Rehoboth Beach in Delaware. Where did that money come from? Because he doesn't come from, like, this big wealthy family. So every time people say, oh, no, Joe Biden didn't profit for any of Hunter's deals, well, then tell me where the money for that beach house came from and that other mansion that they have in Delaware. That's your smoking gun right there if you're wondering whether Joe Biden's the big guy or not. Of course he is. How else do you buy that house if you're not? I mean, that's a huge issue, Joe Concha, a huge issue. I think you're just dead on right. Where did he get that money, uh, having been a senator for all those years and then a vice president? You know, those are jobs that pay $150,000, $200,000 a year. Vice president, maybe a little more. But that's a three. He has a huge place in Wilmington and a huge place in, I think it's Rehoboth on the beach in Delaware, something like yeah. that. Where did that money come from? That's a huge, huge question. I'm surprised. I mean, in a way, that simplifies the whole, you know, all the details about Burisma, which we've been talking about today, the new 1023, uh, and China. That just simplifies the question beautifully. Where did he get the money to build these big properties or buy these big properties? It's a huge question. Yeah, because regular people don't watch the news every day. They, they, they're, they're working two jobs or, you know, they got kids and eight sports like I, like I do and you're running around. You don't have time to sit down and really absorb things. They hear Burisma. They hear Ukraine. Wait, is that where the war's going on? Wait, Burisma, that's an energy company? Wait, China, Hunter Biden? Oh, Hunter isn't in office. He's not running for anything. Why are we mm. picking on the president's son? Like, regular people kind of, like, look at it. They, they, it's hard to understand all of it unless you're paying uh, close attention. So, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's the simple question. Okay, if you buy a multimillion-dollar beach house and another multimillion-dollar house in Wilmington, then, okay, just tell me where the money came from. And, mm. and no one can answer that question. So, either way, you're going to have you're going to have a situation where Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump's uh, legal troubles or impeachment or whatever, pick, pick your poison, that's going to be the focus uh, instead of, again, which I lament completely. It's not an issues-based campaign. That's why one day I would love to see, like, a DeSantis versus Newsom, because then it's like, all right, which state do you want the country to resemble more? Right. Do you want Florida and no income tax and, mm-hmm. and low crime, or do you want California with the highest income tax in the country, high crime, high poverty, uh, high homelessness, people moving out of that state more than any other state going to, ding, 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 Florida or Texas, which 
major red states. If you make it that simple a choice, then I don't see how uh, the Republican candidate could lose regardless of who it is. I don't know why DeSantis doesn't talk about that endlessly, because I think you're dead right. Florida versus California, take a look at what's happening. I think, Joe, Sean Hannity, I think he told me this, uh, I was doing Sean, was it last week Sean was doing town halls or he had a live audience. I was on for a few minutes. And I think afterwards he said something that he was going to sponsor a debate uh, between those guys. I don't know. You go on Sean's show uh, all the time. I don't know if you heard anything uh, about that. Let me ask you one more thing, Joe Concha. Um, yeah. A couple weeks in, in August, let's see, no, a month, we'll call it a month, they're going to debate. Republicans are going to debate in Milwaukee. Do you think Trump's going to debate? Do you think he should be involved in that debate? Yeah, absolutely. And people say, no, oh, he's got a big lead. He doesn't have to debate. We're not voting still in this country in the primaries for six months. So it's like it's the first or second inning of a ball game. And you're saying, oh, you know, we're up 4 nothing. We, we, we don't have to debate, or an NBA game for that matter. It's the first quarter. I think he needs to earn it. And you're not, you don't do the debate because, okay, you want to make sure that people vote for you. Everybody knows who Donald Trump is and, and what he stands for, right? Good, bad, and ugly. You, you debate because you're trying to court general election voters, right? Mm. You're thinking to the general. You're not, don't worry about Ron DeSantis or Vivek on that stage. You're talking about Joe Biden and you're drawing the differences between you and him because Joe, Donald Trump needs to win back independence, suburban women. He's got to get those voting blocks back, disgruntled Democrats for that matter, right? People yeah. like that, like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Mm-hmm. And if he's on that stage, 20 million people are going to be watching on Fox. They watched 24 million watch his first date in 2016. You go because you're never going to get a bigger audience than you will that night. And not showing up is not the Trump brand. Donald Trump is a street fighter, right? And he likes to mix it up. And to stay home and say, oh, they're all going to pick on me, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. It looks weak. It looks weak because it is weak. I think you're right. I think you're right, and I think he's going to wind up debating. I, I think the longer he holds out, and, you know, does a Hamlet, I think that's just going to, re- you know, more people will watch when he finally decides to do it. Anyway, Joe Concha is a yeah. columnist at The Messenger. He's a Fox News contributor, and his great book, Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Presidency, and how to return America to greatest. Thanks, Joe. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk to John Carney of uh, Breitbart Business, see where the economy is going. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. But the index of leading indicators, which doesn't get a lot of play in the press, but it should, uh, you're writing here, the gauge of 10 indicators fell for the 15th consecutive month, etc., etc. The LEI is telling us a recession is on the way. John, talk about that for us, would you please walk through it? Yeah, and so when you look at this index of leading indicators, it has 10 different elements to it. When the people who are serious about looking at it look at it, they look at what they call the three Ds, which is depth, which means how far has it fallen, dispersion, which means how many of those 10 things are in decline, and duration, how long has the decline been lasting? And if you get big numbers for each of those, so, you know, the widespread decline, very deep decline, and a long decline, 15 months it's been that this thing has been in decline, you should probably already be in a recession. Hmm. So what this index is telling us is, I mean, just as we've discussed before, other indicators are saying it as well. Things like the yield curve have been, you know, inverted for long enough that the surprise 
is that we're not in a recession now. And it almost certainly, unless, you know, this is a historically unprecedented moment, we will be in a recession in the next 12 months. You know, there's a great phrase on Wall Street, always trying to make the best possible case. This time it'll be different. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's just an interesting thing. This LEI doesn't get much play, but you walk through it. I've watched it for years. It's a very old-fashioned indicator, and you're right. The depth and duration is very significant, as is the lousy performance. The other thing, John, you just referred to it, the inverted yield curve. Um, I always use the New York Fed yield curve model. Uh, Right now it's predicting about a 70% uh, probability of recession in the next year. But, John Carney, the other side of the coin is the Atlanta Fed's GDP tracker is showing a 2.4% GDP growth rate for the second quarter, which ended June 30th. So it's, in a sense, it's, I don't know, there's a disconnect here someplace. There is. And one of the things that's been happening in the economy is we've had these parts of the economy roll over, go into their own personal, you know, mini-recession, while the rest of the economy has done pretty well. So we had housing. Housing seems to be bouncing out of that recession. Hmm. Manufacturing went into a recession. But it, I looked at the latest Philadelphia Fed numbers, and that actually shows that a, a huge jump in the outlook section, so meaning when they ask manufacturers, what are things going to be like six months from now, there's been a huge improvement in their outlook. So that means they're going to keep hiring people and keep investing. So that manufacturing may actually be rolling over now into out of the recession that it's been into. Maybe I'm not going to say it's in a growth mode yet, but it's stabilizing. I don't think things are getting worse there. And then the consumer, even though all the consumer surveys say the consumer is down in the dumps, consumers have been the consumer spending numbers have been pretty strong. And the stock market has been strong. Absolutely. And people do take that does feed into things like people's willingness to spend, Mm -hmm. because when they see the stock market's doing well, they say, "Okay, look, that's giving me a signal that the economy will not is not about to fall off a cliff. Look, sometimes that signal's wrong. I'm not saying the stock market always gets it right. But people see that we are you know, we've gone up 18 percent year to date, something close to that. We're Mm -hmm. we're more than 20% off the October lows. We're, you know, close. We're the, we're the highest we've been since last April. We're going to soon hit record highs if this keeps on going. And that actually gives people a lot of uh, reassurance and, frankly, encourages them to, you know, do things like take vacations and go out, you know, and spend money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those measures you're just mentioning, your, your last couple of paragraphs, uh, that's got soft landing written all over it. But then you come back to these other the leading indicators and the inverted yield curve say, no, we're going to have a recession. So, John Carney, who's going to win this uh, foot race? Soft landing or recession? I think what's going to be telling is if we get a revival of inflation. So, in other words, if the economy keeps strengthening, if the consumer is still strong, if if manufacturing starts coming back and housing starts coming back, we will have additional inflationary pressures. 
which will mean the Fed will have to raise rates more, and that's what will put us into a recession. So, you know, it's, it's one of these things where the stronger the economy gets, the more the Fed may have to act to put the brakes on, which then might be the thing that puts us into recession. You think some of these CPI numbers, et cetera, you think they might pop back? I do. I think that, that we, we got a bit of a head fake that part of it is that the big numbers from a year ago sort of dropped out so that we're not seeing the year-over-year number be so big. Mm. But um, if you look at the recovery of the housing market, for instance, that is telling us that maybe this long-anticipated uh, housing sector, housing portion of the CPI, the owner's equivalent of rent and, the, and people's rents that was supposed to be bringing down inflation, may not keep doing that. Because, look, oh. if, you're, if you're a landlord and you see home prices are going up, they're going up four months in a row, you're not dropping rents right now. You're actually going to wow. hold them steady or increasing them. So I think that part is actually going to start feeding back into inflation. Energy, energy prices may be creeping back up. Energy prices are creeping back up, and uh, I'll say services prices are also accelerating as well. All right. John Carney, terrific stuff. We appreciate it. John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, co-author of the daily Breitbart Business Digest. That is a must-read, folks. The Breitbart Business Digest, every single day. John Carney, thanks a million. We're going to take a break and do some stock market work on the other side. Back, folks. Free market prosperity, yes, indeed. The question is how to get there for the next 10, 20, or 30 years. Anyway, we're going to reset. You can uh, watch us uh, on TV, Fox Business Network, which, by the way, is clobbering the competition. Anyway, the name of our show is Cudlow, and it's 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m., Fox Business. And if for some reason you can't make it at 4, just text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. You won't miss a thing. And in this radio show, you know, you can live stream us on the Internet. It's uh, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and most particularly through the Milky Way. Won't miss a thing. We're going to do some stock market work. Holy cow. Stock's up 10 straight days. Ten straight days, year to date, the S&P 500 is up 18.1%. The NASDAQ is up 34%. However, we got a Fed meeting this week, and um, interest rates are still relatively high. And I'm also watching two things. There's a rally in gold, and there's also a rally in energy prices. Crude oil, West Texas, back up to $77, and Brent crude up to almost $81. And we have two distinguished panelists, ladies' night out. Here we are, ladies' morning out. Stephanie Links, Chief Investment Strategist for Hightower Advisors and Head of Investment Solutions, and Nancy Tengler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer, Laffer Tengler Investments, and... Uh, Longtime friend, author, columnist, and so forth. Nancy Tengler, a star of the Cudlow Show last night, absolutely dominant, <laughs> unbelievable. Nancy Tengler, um, 
You know, you, you, how many times have you said in the last three, four, five months that you're adding risk to your portfolio? And here we are in this big rally, almost up 20% since last fall. And uh, I know Stephanie is always trying to look for the best in life. That's why we love her. I'm going to Stephanie first. Steph, 10 straight days, 18% up year to date. Um, is this thing going to continue? Is this thing going to last? Well, it feels good for sure. And thanks for having me on. Great to be on with Nancy as well. Um, so at this point in time, we are in a soft landing patch mm. currently. The Atlanta Fed GDP now is running about 2.4%. Of course, we get GDP this week, so we'll see if that's, con- if that's confirmed. But it's led by the consumer. We've talked about the consumer for a very long time, how they've been resilient and how that is tied to jobs and wages. And that is really at the heart of why the consumer is spending. And they are spending. Uh, housing, we're at new home sales at a new year, a one-year high. Auto sales were up 16.1% in June year over year. And, of course, we know the services story very, very well. And I look at this one data point, the Fed's, Financial accounts as of the end of the first quarter and plus current asset prices, and that has led to house, household sector wealth of $157 trillion. The consumer's feeling good, they're spending, and the interesting thing is we're hearing it confirmed by companies. Earnings season is just upon us, right? And we've heard from Synchrony, PNC, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, American Express, all of these companies. We're at the front line of what the consumer is doing. And every single conference call I've listened to, they say the consumer is fine. Maybe it slows down the road. We'll have to see. But for now, the economy remains in a soft landing patch. That's good for for stock. Earnings are coming in better than expected. Uh, and you know, you know very well that stocks follow profits, right? Mm. And profits right now, they're, they're getting revised higher. And it's a beautiful day up here in the country in Connecticut. Beautiful day. <laughs> so add to that. Stephanie, I want to, before we get to Nancy, um, John Katsimatidis was a very dear friend. He and his uh, wonderful wife, Margo, uh, and, of course, the owner of this radio station. John asked me on the radio last night uh, if banks are going to raise their dividends, and if they were, or should they, but if they were going to raise their dividends, that would be an indication that they don't see recession. Now, I don't follow it that closely. Uh, Steph, are banks raising dividends, or will they raise dividends, or are they talking about raising dividends? So the, the largest banks have very strong capital, but because of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, the regulators are going to institute in a couple of weeks new capital rules. And so as a result, all of the banking industry has kind of refrained from raising dividends mm. and buying back. So a few of them are doing it, but not for the most part. They're waiting to see about the new capital rules. Once mm. we know that, I think you absolutely will see it, especially for the big six. They are very, very healthy. They just reported very good earnings. And so, yeah, I do think we've got to get through this one event. And, oh, by the way, I don't think the regionals are going to – they're gonna, they're not going to fare that well in right. this situation. Right. And there are going to be some that may have to raise capital as a result. So just keep an eye on that. But the big ones are just fine, and I expect that them to resume uh, their dividend policies. Nancy Tangler, are, are, across the board, are there any unusual dividend activity? Um, well, good morning. 
from a, a beautiful day in Lake Tahoe. Um, <laughs> <I guess. laughs> um, you were, by yeah. the way, you were terrific last night on the show. You were, ter- and Thank you were you. very kind to Jim Urio. <laughs> I love di- Jim Urio. A different point of view, but <laughs> you just did love a fabulous him. job. You know, I got. It, it's painful to me that I can't have Stephanie Link on my show. I mean, it's it's a, it's an emotionally wrenching thought. She just <laughs> I cannot get her on my show uh, because she's affiliated with another network, and we're clobbering that network in ratings. But anyway, I digress. Uh, dividends, Nancy Tangler. Dividends. <laughs> Well, I mean, we have seen pretty healthy growth across the board, uh, ex the banks, uh, as, as Steph point, pointed out. But, um, you know, we're, we're looking for companies that are setting their dividend policy based on what they think long-term sustainable earnings power is. And that gives us a great shortcut to what management thinks about earnings, because Wall Street is always wrong to the tune of about two-thirds of the time. But we, we've seen some pretty strong um, increases in industrials. Uh, some of the consumer names have have um, chimed in, but effectively, uh, I think the market is is pausing um, in general to see how we get through these next couple of weeks because mm-hmm. there are a number of major um, economic data points, and then we've got the Fed, and as Stephanie pointed out, we have GDP, and so I think people, you know, many investors are sitting and waiting, and you see that with cash on the sidelines. But where there are dividends, we've seen pretty strong growth, and particularly in energy over the last year. A lot of special dividends that have really goosed up uh, the payouts for those stocks. But the payout ratio in general for the market is pretty low based on history. I think when mm-hmm. I got in, it was 50 60%, and now we're hovering in the 30 40% uh, range. So there's there's plenty of room, plenty of cash, pr- plenty of free cash flow in the companies that we're, um, we own and uh, continue to look, look So that's a, that's a healthy sign for the economy, isn't it? Yeah, if, you, if I, I you've think got so. a lot of cash flow, just look look at that for example. Uh, so there's plenty of liquidity out there. Um, there's no big contraction uh, where uh, cash flow is falling, dividends is falling, retained earnings is falling. I mean, we're not seeing those signs. Well, right, and then remember too that many of these companies, you know, issue debt at super low levels. But federal government should probably stand up and take pay attention to that <laughs> instead of what we're about to see, which is the federal government, um, just for interest payments alone, we're going to see just ballooning issuance of treasuries. But these companies are financially, their balance sheets are in good in good shape, and, and so is the consumer, as Stephanie mm-hmm. pointed out. The baby boomers are still, you know, their net worth is $75 trillion. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to drag them back to the workforce, that's for sure. Stephanie, <clears throat> I- just the the last segment uh, before you folks, uh, John Carney of Breitbart, we were telling you about two negative factors, and I want to get a take on that. One is the index of leading indicators from the conference board uh, has fallen 15 consecutive months, uh, and it's a very steep decline, and it's a widespread decline in their 10 indicators. And then, of course, the yield curve remains uh, you know, steeply inverted and negative. Those are traditionally recession signs. What do you make of it? There's no question about it uh, that these are the negatives. Uh, and, and but I, I point out again to the to the consumer, which is still really very healthy, and that's 70 percent of GDP. And so we are 
very closely, all of us are watching the consumer and all of us are watching the job market because as long as the job market stays tight, then we have time. Now, I'm not saying that in six to eight months from now, things don't get worse. They probably are going to get worse than where we are from here. Hmm. But I don't know if it's uh, a slam dunk on, on, on recession because there still is, Larry, a lot of stimulus in the economy. Right. And it takes yeah. a really long time to get into the economy and it takes mm. a long time to get out. So I think there's enough momentum right now uh, so that we are able to offset some of these leading indicators. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, I mean, we're all bothered by the yield curve inversion. Uh, and it's about it's been about a year, right, a little over a year since it mm. started to invert. So usually it's about, what, 18 to 24 months before you see a recession. We'll have to see. But watch right. jobs, watch wages, and watch the consumer. All right. Quick break. Got to take the commercial break, uh, capitalists that we are. Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist of Hightower Advisors, Head of Investment Solutions, and Nancy Tengler, CEO and CIO of Lafford Tengler Investments. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We are talking stocks, which have done very well, up 10 straight days. The S&P is up 18% year-to-date, so everybody's happy in the world. We have Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist, Hightower Advisors, and Head of Investment Solutions, and Nancy Tengler, CEO and CIO of uh, Laffer Tengler Investments. And she is a star. Actually, you're both stars of television. I just can't mention the other one. Um, <laughs> Nancy Tengler, uh, let's do a little Fed watching. Their meeting is this week. What what are they going to do in your judgment? Well, you know, I've, I've been pretty vocal about my criticism, and so I, I think they're going to raise. Um, I, uh, that's not innovative or newsworthy. About 25 bips would be the market's guess and everyone else's. Uh, the, the question is, you know, what happens during the, the um, intrepid press conference? And so I, I think what, you know, hopefully what we'll hear is not, not very much uh, in terms of um, Chairman Powell trying to provide an indication of, of what the group's thinking. I mean, my favorite part of the cycle is when they go in their quiet period because there's just too much chatter and they've been so wrong. You know, Neil Kashkari, the perma-dove, is now the perma-hawk. And you've got, you know, a lot of people that are weighing in on stuff that used to be, you know, not discussed at all. Um, go back to the Alan Greenspan days. He, he was very quiet in between meetings. So I, I think the market is looking past the Fed at this point, unless there's some sort of um, major uh, hiccup. But uh, I think, as, as Stephanie has pointed out, and as we pay attention, earnings are better than expected. Investors are focused on that. And I think that, you know, the AI bubble, as people are calling it, we think we're in the pre-market warm-up, um, uh, the pre-game warm-up for, for AI. And, and the reason for that is that if you look out at, at the um, Census Bureau, they're projecting a labor shortage through 2047. And during previous periods of that, you've seen strong technology spending, improvements in productivity, and, and tech stocks doing quite well. So we would use any dips. Uh, to, to add to those names. You know, Stephanie, on the AI, I want to come back to the Fed, but just on the AI, there's so much talk 
We have to regulate the AI. We have to regulate the AI. The AI is going to destroy the economy. The AI is going to put everybody out of jobs. You know, historically, these technological advances are great for the economy and mm-hmm. e- create jobs. And I don't want the government regulating everything. I, I want to let this thing just go. Well, they want to regulate social media, too, but they haven't been able to do it, right? So they can, you know, scream and you know, cry and scream out loud, but they, they can't get it done, and they're not going to get it done on AI either. Half the people don't even understand what it is. I think a lot of people in, in general don't even understand the power of what AI is, is and can be. But AI is only as good as the data that you put into these systems, right? So it's going to take a very long time for AI to really be very effective. And I agree with you. I think it will create jobs. And, oh, by the way, I think it's not going to eliminate nearly the amount of jobs that people are kind of clamoring about because people will always want to talk to people and have perspective and to Mm -hmm. have opinions. And AI is not going to have an opinion for you. It can give you all the data in the world, but if you have to actually take that data and what do you do with it? And so that's why I think it is very powerful. And it's a $4.4 trillion total addressable market by 2030, so says McKinsey. So it's a mm-hmm. big, uh, it's a big area. You definitely want to have exposure. But one thing I just want to get, um, just m- mention to you, just uh, aside from AI, is this notion in the marketplace, we're up a lot. But you know what's interesting? And I'm sure Nancy has seen this too, is in the last couple of weeks, Larry, we've seen a broadening out. Mm-hmm. It's not just the big seven names. Uh, that really ruled the day the first six months of the year. You're seeing a broadening out into energy, into financials, into discretionary, into materials, industrials. So that, mm-hmm. to me, is very healthy. The first part of the year, not so much. Yes, agreed. Nancy Tangler, you remember Joseph Schumpeter? <laughs> well, Gales, not well. Get, well, he's been <laughs> dead for a long time. I think he died in 1950, <laughs> 51. Okay. I... I commune with him. We weren't born then, Larry. (laughs) I I know. I was. But I commune with him sometimes, a spiritual commune. And he reminds me of his great phrase, gales of creative destruction, where the new replace the old. Now, there is some destruction, but the creation is greater than the destruction. I mean, Schumpeter was a very brilliant guy writing about entrepreneurs and stuff. And that's the, I mean, here, tell our, listen, what is AI, okay, artificial intelligence? And I put into that quantum computing because I think the two are very closely related. Mm -hmm. Nancy Tangler, as brilliant as you are, give us a quick definition. Um, So I wrote a piece called uh, Time to Replace the Fed with ChatGPT. I wanted to combine with the Fed question. Because um, at least generative AI learns. And that's that's really the point, is that, it, it, yes, the data, of course, matters. But it, it, it gets better and better as time goes on and gets more accurate answers. So. We're going to replace Joe Biden with AI. We just don't even need the guy. Okay. Stephanie Lincoln, Hightower Investors and Investment Solutions. Nancy Tangler of Laffer Tangler. Thank you, kids. You're both fabulous. Folks, after the break, we're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peake. And Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. Right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. We're going to talk some money and the politics. We have Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. And we have Steve Moore, 
of FreedomWorks and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and Steve's great radio show. It's called More Money and it follows this show on most of these same stations. More Money, please stick around for it. Uh, welcome back, kids. Um, let's talk some politics here. We had this um, Biden bombshell the Chuck uh, Grassley put out the 1023 report, and it kind of changes the story. It wasn't Burisma pressuring Biden and, and bribing him. It was Biden with a shakedown uh, and coercion of Burisma and saying, you got to give us $5 million, me and my son, and Lord knows who else got money, uh, and then we'll try to help you with your uh, legal problems and getting an oil company in the United States. I, Liz, I, Liz Peek, I want to add to that. Your columns, you make an interesting point. It's evident that the incessant kowtowing by the Biden White House to China, if our president has taken money from Chinese companies, officials in Beijing know all about it, and undoubtedly relish the leverage that knowledge gives them over an unpopular U.S. president. So this guy's got a problem with Burisma. He's got a big problem with Congress. He's got a big problem with the Oversight Committee. Uh, he's going to have a big political problem. And at the same time, he's got big... Of course, they took money from China. We know that. Uh, I mean, Hunter Biden basically said, my father's sitting right next to me, to this uh, Chinese banker who was affiliated with the Chinese Communists. I mean, what, what does this mean? How does Biden survive this? How does Biden run for president with all this stuff going around? I'm going to start with you, Liz, and then I'm coming to Steve afterwards. Well, first of all, I think a growing number of people think Biden will not run for president, that yep. at some point between now and the end of the year, he will step aside for health reasons or, you know, some kind of made-up excuse but but to your point, Larry, this is closing in on him. And yet, and yet, I read the New York Times today. I went and bought the New York Times, hard copy, read every single word in it. There is no mention of any of this. So you and I and Steve and your listeners, millions of Americans are following this story. It's almost inconceivable. And I went back and looked at yesterday's Times, Thursday's Times, Wednesday's Times, not mentioned. So... I got to tell you, I find this, I mean, we all know that the liberal media is in the can for Joe Biden and Democrats, but this is a pretty extraordinary situation where I I read your op-ed in the New York Sun. I thought it was excellent and you're correct. This is probably the most explosive political story of my lifetime after Watergate or truthfully, uh, you know, dirty tricks with your opponents. Uh, during the Watergate thing, isn't even held a candle to this uh, mm. allegation of bribery. So how can he do it the same way that he ran for president in 2020 and they hid all the facts from the American people about his mental decline? Uh, he ran from his basement because of COVID. This time he's running with the smokescreen of Trump indictments, Trump trials, Trump hearings all of which occupy the front page of the New York Times day after day after day, no matter what has come out about Hunter and Joe Biden. So that is how he's going to run if he runs. But I actually think this is too close. The dots are being connected. Uh, there's simply a growing a kind of unmovable body of evidence. So I don't think he will. Yeah, the walls are closing in, Steve. Steve Moore, uh, have you invited Gavin Newsom to one of your mm. pro- committee <laughs> prosperity yeah. dinners? 
I mean, yeah, you gotta, he is. You got to start. I know you got Bobby Kennedy Jr., which is will be great fun. But you know, Gavin Newsom's got a pack, right? He's waiting. To, he's waiting to put his, throw his hat in. He's absolutely waiting. Well, he doesn't have a hat because he has that beautiful head of hair. But whatever he'll throw into the ring, he's going to throw in. But Steve Moore, I don't see how Biden can survive all this. Well, I'm just struck by what Liz was saying. You know, I wonder whether any New York Times reporter will ever ask, you know, what did the president know? When did he know it? As they famously asked Richard Nixon. Um, It it is really pretty remarkable. This is the biggest story in the country and the major news outlets, Washington Post, New York Times, uh, CNN, uh, are not. Either they're not covering it or I, sometimes I turn the channel to MSNBC just to hear what they're saying. And they're just all they're doing is covering up for Biden when mm-hmm. they cover the story. So um, uh, it's it is pretty extraordinary how much in the uh, hip pocket the media is to Biden. Uh, I kind of hope the story will go away because I want to run against Joe Biden as president. I think he's incredibly weak. Uh, but if it's not Joe Biden. I, I do worry about Gavin Newsom because he's the governor of the uh, you know the biggest state in the country and he's won by big margins there. Although he's he's very you know had a very very liberal agenda, Larry, and he's no supply sider. He really is. Uh, he but he but he has a Bill Clinton type personality. He's a very likable guy. Mm-hmm. But then the question, of course, is I don't want to change the subject too much, but what do you do about a store a, a problem like Camelot? You know, Kamala would be like the most unpopular politician in America today. Yeah, but so that's why I think you're going to see something happen between now and October, mid-October at the latest. They have to have the pretense of a primary season, right? And you can't do that starting in January. So I do think if there's going to be a move made here to get Biden out, it has to be in the next two or three months, or you're looking at some bizarro situation where someone is lobbed in like a Michelle Obama who has name recognition. So they don't have to worry about that. Uh, and they can just, you know, bring her up at the convention or something. I don't know. I don't know how you guys are smarter about this kind of maneuvering than I am, but I got, I got one. The house, yeah. the house is getting ready to impeach Joe Biden. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You, there's an that's, impeachment. I think that's serious. And it is serious. And Jamie Comer is, I mean, they're just going through this story. You know, Chuck Grassley released this 1023, uh, which was a complete bombshell. But I'm telling you that more and more uh, House members are looking at an impeachment. They'll hold a formal impeachment, a trial. How the hell is he going to run with that? Well, again, <laughs> it's like two different worlds. He'll, he'll be damned in the eyes of people who follow it and who believe all this information that's come forward. And if the news media continue to ignore it, they won't. It, it, and I got to tell you, so I sat next to a pretty important CEO at dinner two nights ago. Very smart guy, very well-informed. And he was saying, yeah, you know, I, I've been following this stuff with Joe Biden but Trump is worse. I mean, that's kind of where all these guys are landing, you know. And I said, well, in what way is Trump worse? He's just a horrible, despicable person. And I was like, well, OK, but in terms of the impact on the country, 
Don't you think having good policies from a bad person, in your view, Mm. is worse than bad policies from a good person, in your view? And, I mean, that's kind of where the argument lies. I mean, both of these people, he doesn't want, by the way, he's in the vast majority of Americans, I think, who don't want either one of these people to run. But there he is. I mean, he just is going to discount Joe Biden's corruption. I mean, this is corruption. It's pretty incredible. I remember that in the... 2016 race, uh, some things popped up about Trump. I'm not going to go through it, but some things popped up that weren't true, but they popped up. And, you know, a bunch of people said, look, Trump is running for president, not sainthood. And I think that's going to come back again. But Steve Moore, you and I kind of want to see Biden run on Bidenomics. We want to have a a debate about Bidenomics. And remember, Steve, he cut the deficit by $1.7 trillion. <laughs> now, the problem with that is this year's deficit looks like it's going to be about $2.2 trillion. And uh, Kevin Hassett was talking on the show, on the TV show, over the next 30 years, debt is going to be 200% of GDP. So I don't think Bidenomics is going to do that well for him. Well, Steve, you there? I think we lost him. Liz? Bidenomics? Yeah, I mean, apart from all all the Burisma bombshell stuff, he's going to run on Bidenomics? Really? Well, that's he he wants to distract the country. And I have to say, Axios today was out there saying, oh, you know, all the things were so terrible are getting better. Yes, they have gotten better, but people are not better off, Larry. I mean, just because inflation is now four or five percent instead of nine percent, or even if you say some parts of inflation are even lower than that. The truth is we've all been hurt pretty badly by the ratcheting up of prices. Prices aren't coming down. They're just growing at a slower rate. So, you know, a lot of the I I think also running on Bidenomics right now is a pretty risky business because there are still half of the economists out there who are looking for a recession, who expect. In fact, uh, Janet Yellen said the other day the jobs market was cooling. It is cooling. And, you know. If you look back at 2001 uh, and 2008, up until the point where the recession hits hard, everything looks fine. And that's kind of, you know, that Ed Hyman, my favorite economist on Wall Street, keeps saying everything's fine until it isn't. And I'm not predicting doom and gloom. I'm just saying I don't think we're out of the woods here. We have a big story. What was it yesterday from the journal about credit tightening at the banks? Mm -hmm. That doesn't help the growth of the economy. I think at best the economy is in a very slow uh, growth mode, being slowed in part by the same things that happened during the Obama administration, which is you have just this blizzard of anti-business regulations and rules and actions coming from this White House, Mm. whether it's the SEC or the FTC or the Fed or whatever. uh, People are really uh, interfering with the natural uh, progress of business and that slows investment. It slows consumer confidence. I, I don't think things are going in the right direction. All right, let's take a quick break. Maybe we'll uh, retrieve Steve Moore. Liz Peake <laughs> is telling us all about it, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and uh, Steve Moore from FreedomWorks and the Unleashed Prosperity Hotline and his radio show, More Money, after this show. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. 
Welcome back, folks. We are talking money and politics with Stephanie, with Stephanie, with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. And we found Steve Moore of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and his radio show right after this one called More Money. Uh, Steve Moore, um, have you defeated Larry Fink? Have you destroyed BlackRock? Have you ended ESG? What's going on here? Well, this is a big story. You know, we uh, we at the Committee of Unleashed Prosperity put out this report back about two or three months ago where we're rating these big money management firms, including BlackRock and State Street and UBS and J.P. Morgan, about how many times they were supporting these crazy, you know, ESG uh, shareholder resolutions on things like, you know, divesting in oil and gas companies, divesting in plastic companies, uh, you know, forcing companies to have racial and uh, gender qu- quotas on their boards and things like that. Things that were really contrary to the profitability of the companies they've invested in. We made the case, Larry, these, these were violating the fiduciary duty that these companies have to their, to their investors and their shareholders. And so, uh, we rated these companies, and most of them got Fs. Most of them were voting with the you know left-wing activists on these crazy initiatives. And we had a big piece in the Wall Street Journal on this about two and a half months ago. We called out these companies. And all of a sudden, and your good friend Larry Fink uh, at, at uh, BlackRock, uh, you know, who's been a real lefty on this stuff, has declared they're going to allow the shareholders, you know, each individual shareholder, if they want to, to vote their own proxy and not have the big companies do it for them. That's a big victory. Mm. So what, run that. So votes are taken on ESG, but they can be overruled by the actual shareholders. So, so for example, let's say that you have an account with BlackRock, and let's say you have, you know, $200,000 in an account. Uh, and, and part of your account, you own shares of AT&T. I'm just using an example. Instead of BlackRock voting those shares for you, you the, all of the investors would be able to vote their own shares, which right. is, I think, a great thing. It's a so, good for democracy. It's good for shareholders. Uh, and it's good for these uh, these companies. So this is a total shift. And by yeah. the way, this is two two and a half trillion dollars of uh you know, shareholder money that will now be voted on by the by the people who own these stocks rather than the than the money managers themselves. Now, Liz, the other side of this story is this week, the Biden administration came out with a bunch of regulations uh, <laughs> regarding drilling for oil and gas on public yep. lands. Yeah, and and basically, they're again they're raising the fees and they're cutting back the availability. And I want to raise this point, too. I don't know if you had glanced at it. The rig count has come down substantially. Yep. And that these are bad signs. And I just wonder, uh, energy prices, oil prices, uh, they're starting to creep up. Now, some of this is, you know, saber-rattling from the Saudis and the Russians. But here at home, we are losing our energy dominance and that I always watch that rig count because that's a pretty good leading indicator. What do you make of that? This can't be good. Well, it's not good, and it's part of a plan to exit the fossil fuel industry hmm. that has been promoted by all these 
banks and financial institutions and the liberals that we're all aware of, and certainly by this administration. What they just did was raise the cost of drilling for oil, and they have been doing that since Joe Biden took uh, hold over the uh, Oval Office in January 2021. Mm -hmm. They have also made leases less available. So the reason the rig count's going down, first, arguably, because oil prices did go down after a spiking couple of years, or when was that, 18 months ago or whatever, but also because uh, it's just been harder and harder to get approvals, get drilling permits, access land that you actually want. The Biden administration will make a big show of holding a lease sale and then basically not lease any acreage that's attractive to anybody. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, they continue this war on fossil fuels. And, Larry, I think, you know, people should be aware like in New York, there was a story today about how utility bills, electric bills are going right. to be up enormously, right. doubling in the next two years. Remember, oil, uh, sorry, coal and natural gas prices, which are the main components still of producing electricity in our country, are down almost 70 percent year over year. So why should electric costs be going up? The reason is because of all the mandates to basically get rid of coal, rid of natural gas and instead bring in uh, uh, solar and wind power, which at this moment is very expensive because we haven't got the infrastructure to support it. So everything, you know, it's going to really be incredibly annoying when there are blackouts <laughs> and these prices go through the roof and the politicians will take no responsibility for this and instead blame, you guessed it, the oil business yeah. uh, for having wreaked this, this problem on American uh, consumers, and it will not be true. And Steve, well, Larry, let me let me put a price tag on this because uh, everything that Liz said was absolutely true. And right now, even before they declare war on American drilling on uh, federal lands, right now we're two million barrels a day, a mm. day below where we would be if Trump's policies had right. remained in place. Right. So sure. just do the right. do the math there. So. It's two million fewer barrels a day. Last time I checked, the price of oil was somewhere around seventy-five dollars a barrel. So, if my math is right, that's one hundred and fifty million dollars a day, a mm-hmm. day that we're not producing, that we're increasing our trade deficit. That think of the jobs attached to that. Uh, you know, for the first time in Amer- in your and my lifetime, and Liz's lifetime under Trump, we were energy independent. Now we have OPEC and all these countries that we have to be dependent on because we're not producing oil and gas in North Dakota and Alaska and Texas and, and, you know, in West Virginia. We're getting it now from a place like Iran and Saudi Arabia and Russia. It's the craziest thing I ever saw. And, Steve, um, it's not the hottest summer in history. (laughs) Okay, I mean, this client here, they go again. Uh, it's, it's July and temperatures go up, but some yep. parts of the country temperatures went down. Yeah, it's been no look. It has been a hot summer, no question about it. Especially if you lived in the, in the Southwest, where you've had degree, you know temperatures of 110 degrees. But uh, the hottest period for the United States in the last hundred years has been was in the 1930s during the Great Depression. By the way, that was before 90% of the carbon emissions in the atmosphere. But my favorite part of the story, Larry, there was a, I'm not making this up to you guys, there was a, uh, a New York Times story saying this was the, this has been the hottest summer in 100,000 years. 
<laughs> like, that's such a show. What, did they have thermostats back in 90,000 B.C.? I mean, come on. This is the most ridiculous. It shows how crazy these people are. To you. And by the way, the Washington Post fact-checked this. They said, yes, it is a fact that, you know, the temperature this summer is hotter than it was 90,000 B.C. I mean, okay, can I, can I interject one thing? Because this climate thing really... When you when you have this kind of temperature, people go nuts. There's a literally an article in the L.A. Times saying, "Isn't it more important that we solve climate change than keep the lights on every day?" <laughs> Liz Peak, Steve Moore, folks, please listen to Steve Moore's "More Money" right after the show. Thank you, kids, folks. I'm Cudlow, and we will be back next weekend. <laughs> 